You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. What's going on, y'all? To Marcus, and I'm excited to be in studio with my co-host, Adam Hawkins. How's it going? It's going well. I'm excited today. Wonderful, because we're also joined with a good friend, Jonathan Dotson, who's back already. How's it going? Great. And we three get the privilege to be joined by uh, Dr. Paul D. Miller. Paul is a academic in the fields of politics and national security and professor in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. Paul, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Now, it is, if I understand correctly, you and Dotson go way back. Uh, unfortunately so. <laughs> <laughs> so I am right now I'm in D.C. teaching at Georgetown, but I taught at the University of Texas for four years. And during that time, my, my wife and I, my family were at City Life Church in Austin under Jonathan's pastorate and very Pleased to have been there and count Jonathan a very good and close friend. Love to see that reconciliation come, <laughs> come full circle. Paul, well, Paul is also has another credential that probably is worth noting. He is a Star Wars aficionado. Oh, wow. Mm. Oh, you're in very good company, Paul. Paul, did you see he the Rebel Moon it. was going to be a Star Wars thing? And then it, 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 what did you think about that? So I didn't see the movie. I understand no. there's a director's cut coming out. I'm saving it for the director's there cut. There you go. There, see, he, oh, yeah. he's already ahead. That's, yes. Yeah. Star Wars. That's the one with Chewbacca, right? Okay. <laughs> Don't, do Don't do it. I won't disappoint you further. I thought a, a good place for us to start. So our, our conversation we want to dive into today, and really just for those of you listening, we're going to break this into two parts because there's so much to discuss but this this idea of Christian nationalism and um, Dr. Miller actually has a really, really great book out on this matter, The Religion of American Greatness, where he dives into this pretty extensively. And so that some of the conversation will derive around that and we might go kind of off script. But maybe just to get us started, if you could define for us, what is Christian nationalism? I know that's a word that many probably have heard a lot, have used a lot. Many people can mean many different things by it. And so for our purposes today, how can we best understand that term? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's important. And I just want to say I'm grateful that you and your listeners are care enough about this to spend some time thinking about it and talking about it. You're right that people a couple of years ago didn't use the term Christian nationalism. When I was working on the book, it was not a mainstream term, and it kind of really came to the fore I'd say in 2021, pretty suddenly. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and people use it in very different ways. And how you define it, it's kind of the whole ballgame mm. as to whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Right. Advocates of Christian nationalism say it's all the good stuff and nothing bad. <laughs> right. And I, I want to be fair in how we define it. There's many different kinds. I could give you a whole topology. But really, it boils down to this. If you say that America is a Christian nation and the government ought to keep it that way, I think that's Christian nationalism. America is a Christian nation, and the government has a responsibility to keep it that way. That's, that's Christian nationalism, because that's a statement of the government's 
purpose, its responsibility, its jurisdiction, it's a political ideology, it's a statement about what governments are for, and that is that is a nationalist ideology. Dr. Miller, you touched on something there that I think is important, and that's just kind of the history of the term, because to your, to your point, it, people paying attention, this we didn't talk about Christian nationalism maybe even five years ago. You maybe you had to be in a, a certain you know kind of a, a tribe or something to to, mm-hmm. to to hear that word tossed around. And then it I think as it was introduced, it was mainly introduced negatively. But now there are people, even politicians, who are calling themselves by this term in a in a positive way. And so maybe. I could just ask, why do you think this term or this idea of Christian nationalism, how, how has it become such a buzzword in our society today? Why does it matter? Why is it important? And why are people talking about it? Yeah. Nationalism has been underground, so to speak, for decades in American political life. People have not typically self-identified as nationalists. Right. It's, it, 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 has a, it has a negative connotation to it. It's a bit of a dirty word. President Trump embraced it in 2018 in a speech in October 18. He said, you know what? I am. I'm a nationalist. And I think that was accurate. I think it's a good, accurate label to describe his political ideology. And it is different from what I would call political conservatism. There are differences between those two things. Okay. And the next step is just to apply the adjective Christian to it, because nationalism is an argument about national identity. Who are we as a people? What defines us? Nationalism defines a people by a common or shared culture rather than a shared creed. And the culture that American nationalists want to embrace is a Christian or Judeo-Christian or Anglo-Protestant culture that they say is essential to being an American. And so Christian nationalism is the belief that we are defined as a people by a shared Christian culture of some stripe or variety. That's really helpful. Mm. You you mentioned there that it's different from conservatism. Help us there. Help, mm. help, help us out with that. So political conservatism is founded in the 1950s by Russell Kirk and William Buckley and those guys as, as an opposition to the New Deal, right? And their whole, their whole shtick is to say government should do fewer things, more or less. Small government, limited government. It shouldn't do a whole lot of stuff. Government's not very capable, not very competent. And we don't really trust the big bureaucracies. And so we should keep it kind of narrow in scope. Today, we kind of call it libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Nationalism actually is pretty comfortable with big government. Nationalism wants to give the government a lot of power to do a lot of stuff. Nationalists want to make the government in charge of orchestrating a common culture for all of us. In other words, nationalism wants to give the government the responsibility to tell us who we are. It, that's a that's a big role. It's a huge responsibility. And so nationalists are far more comfortable with big government powers than old-fashioned conservatives were back in the day. And sorry, guys, I'm monopolizing, but I had one more clarifying question because I thought it was really important. You you made this distinction between culture and creed, you know, and, and you just mentioned again that nationalists want the government to be able to tell us who we are. It strikes me that maybe again before Trump's presidency, and and maybe I'm I could be really off on that, but there did seem to be this shared ethos among Americans t- to a degree 
that what being an American meant was more about aspiring to an ideal. Y'all have heard that language before, yeah. right? Or aspiring maybe to to a type of creed, whether that's the a Bill of Rights or Declaration of Independence. It, we had like founding documents that we like pointed to and it seemed to encompass something. Am I, is that fair to say that? And that nationalism has taken a turn to say to to say more than that, you know, to not be necessarily creedal. Um, is it right to look back and say America was creedal before? Or is that, you know, am I, am I being revisionist? Um, a, a little bit. Yeah. I, I would say that there's, <laughs> there has always been rival conceptions of American identity. Yes. And there's, let's, let's simplify and say that there's been three of them. One is a racial conception of American identity, that America is the country for white people, for European immigrants, right? This is the white republic. And people were very, very explicit about this for 300 some years in American history. That's always been part of America. The second conception is religious, that this is a country for Protestants. This America has a very long history of anti-Catholic bigotry. Mm. And again, very explicitly argued that this should be a country for Protestant supremacy. And that dates back to the Puritans, clear up through the 1960 presidential election with, with John F. Kennedy, the first Catholic president. The third conception is the civic, the idea that we Americans are defined by a creed of shared liberty and equality for, for all. And these three conceptions have, have been in tension and, and a kind of a contest. You can sometimes see the first two together where some Americans said, we're a country for white Protestants. There's actually a, an organization, a civic organization that made that argument very strong and put out an effort to defend America for white Protestants. It was called the Ku Klux Klan. That was, that was what they were all about. It was defending that idea of America. The civic conception really gains a lot more ground after World War II, after we fought a global war against fascism against white supremacy, against anti-Semitism, against Japanese imperialism, the hip hypocrisy was too evident. And so it really led America to embrace the civic idea that, hey, look, you know, maybe we ought to live up to this ideal and say, we are a nation for all people. And that leads directly to the civil rights movement and a lot of other changes in American life. And so, so there's a, maybe a brief history of different ideas of American identity. That's really helpful. And would you say the seeds of each of those ideas were baked into the founding too? You could trace them back? Yeah, I, I think it's, that's very fair. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 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 And um, in other words, when you said post the civic idea really kind of found its legs after World War II, it wasn't that it was maybe necessarily invented then. You could have. No. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that's, look, the, the founding is a moment when white Protestants wrote some really great ideals and then it spent the next century and a half not living up to them. Right, right. <laughs> and, and we can celebrate the ideals, and that's the, the tribute we can pay to the Anglo-Protestant heritage is that it gave us ideals with which to hold them accountable for their hypocrisy. Right. So that's, that's the kind of paradox of American history. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. I think maybe another distinction helpful to throw out at this time, too, because you, you used the word, talk about liberty, the kind of traditional libertarian roots when we think about conservatism. Uh, in the book, you mentioned that the, the, the way that we currently function in our, you know, the left, the right, conservative, liberal, whatever, that both actually both sides fall short of the ideals of, of liberty, right? You say that they're both illiberal, which that also could be a loaded term. Could you maybe 
just take a moment to define what what do you mean when you say liberal and how do how yeah. do both sides fall short of that and then how did you know obviously how does christian nationalism fall short of that in your opinion uh, i got a couple more books coming to answer all those questions <laughs> <laughs> i love it love it yeah look i i would pick a different term if i could because okay. i know the word liberal is used in so many different ways and it can mm-hmm. be confusing but historically i think it's the most accurate word there was an ideology that arose around the 17th 18th century centuries and it was and it called itself liberalism today we call it classical liberalism it's simply yes. an ideology of human freedom and human equality in in a sense we're, we're all liberals in that broad sense except i argue the nationalists aren't <laughs> right they don't actually abide by it so there are versions of both the left and the right which are classically liberal in that broad sense, that we believe in human liberty and equality. The founders, John Locke, Thomas Jefferson, are all talking the language of classical liberalism. And so when I say that nationalism and I'd say progressivism, the kind of hardcore left, are both illiberal, I mean, they're not liberal. They're not classically liberal in that sense. I think actually both extremes are not consistent with the American founding, with the ideals of liberty and equality for all, in different ways to different measures. But I think both left and right fall into that trap, and and they're both dangerous. Could you give us some examples on either side how they don't live up to liberalism? So let's talk about nationalism. If nationalism says that the government gets to say who we are, that the government turns around and says, this is us, we are a Christian nation, Judeo-Christian, Anglo-Protestant, The government is also saying, you're not one of us to anybody who doesn't fit. And that might be immigrants, it might be non-Christians, it might be non-Anglos. Anybody who doesn't fit the cultural mold that the government propagates doesn't fit, doesn't count, they're fake, they're second-class citizens, they're not real Americans. And that is an illiberal attitude, at least, and can often lead to illiberal policy where you start to treat people differently, treat them as second-class citizens. There, there's benign versions of this where you, you're just not giving people the proper recognition as equal citizens. And there's far more hostile, belligerent versions as well, of course, all the way down to genocide. So that is how nationalism trends towards illiberality or just oppressiveness. Progressivism, again, I do literally have another book on this, the nationalism book is part of a trilogy. Book number two is about the left. I haven't written it yet. But if I could give an example, it'd be something about campus speech codes, right? I think the left, one one of the ingrained tendencies in the left is to police our speech because in their view, speech can equal violence. And therefore, they have to control what we say, what we think, what we believe in order to edit out all the bad ideas. And look, George Orwell explained pretty well why that's a bad idea. And you get to the absurdities that we've seen on college campuses where you're not allowed to say things deemed to be transphobic, but also somehow you're allowed to say bigoted anti-Semitic things. And so there's this, you know, the absurdities of college life. So I could talk a lot more about that, but that I think is a tendency we see on the left. It is helpful in, in thinking about, there seem. In some ways, and I, and, and I've this is maybe just my own need for clarity, but reading recently about the alt right and maybe even the far right and how many of their ideas are birthed out of a very pagan 
background yeah. that that really some of the first and and most ardent attacks against Christianity weren't from the left but were from a far right which was a surprise to me as I was reading and then seeing how some of these thinkers have been smuggled into these nationalist arguments and then even Christian nationalist arguments and so like one example is the idea of the an extreme anti-immigrant push because our identity is inherited right would be like a, a claim that some of these far-right thinkers would make but there seems to be some of that strain you can start to find in some of these identitarian national yeah. you know christian national arguments there's a i guess what i would say is there's almost an irony in some of it and and so is it fair is it fair to say that in reading not again it, we defined it very broadly but in reading some of these christian nationalists that it seems their movements this movement seems less Christian in some ways to me. And I guess that defines how you would, or it depends on how you define Christian movements. But am I on to something here? Have you seen some of that as you've studied Christian nationalism? Yeah, you're, you're touching on the relationship between Christian nationalism and race in American life. Right. That's a really complicated topic and it's really touchy. You're not wrong to see a connection. There, some critics say Christian nationalism is nothing but a mask that white nationalism wears. I think that's unfair. I don't think sure. that's accurate. But it's also true that there's a there's some kind of relationship there. Christian nationalism has accepted a wide range of fellow travelers. Okay. Of nationalist fellow travelers. And yes, some of them are post-Christian nationalists and, and white nationalists and the alt-right and so, so on and so forth. And it does make me wonder, it makes me ask, why do white nationalists believe that Christian nationalists are their allies? Mm -hmm. there, there's something there that makes white nationalists very comfortable with Christian nationalists. And I'll just cite again the example of the Ku Klux Klan that married them both together. Mm -hmm. It was racial nationalism and religious nationalism. They believed that those two things went together very well. Again, I'm not saying that that's true of all Christian nationalists today. Today's Christian nationalists actually talk about culture more than race or theology. They talk about culture. That, that doesn't excuse it. It doesn't say it's not racist. Uh, I just want to kind of use their terms to be fair to them. Right, right. We want to nuance it to be fair. Yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. Yeah. Could I read a quote from your book to kind of dial into this a little bit more? Always just read the whole book out loud. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> On page 179, Paul writes, America has been shaped by many atheists, agnostics, and deists including Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Mark Twain, Ernest Hemingway, Robert Frost, Frank Lloyd Wright, William Howard Taft, Thomas Edison, Walt Whitman, Joyce Carol Oates, Camille Pegula, Edgar Allan Poe, Thomas Paine, and James Watson. It would be strange to argue that Mark Twain, author of some of the quintessential American novels, was somehow less than fully American because of his heterox religious beliefs. This seems to kind of get at some of what we're talking about here. There's a kind of fallacy within the the Christian nationalist worldview. Do you care to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that's a good good example of the, you know, if the government says we're a Christian people, it's saying to the non-Christians, you're not one of us. And there's a list of people who would apparently be less than fully American, according to the Christian nationalists, who are actually decisive in shaping who we are. Can you imagine America without Mark Twain? 
Can you imagine America without all those other folks you mentioned? I think in the same passage, I then go on and list some agnostics, Jewish Americans, and, and so forth. And it's a long list of people who have shaped our life for the better. And it would be a different and lesser America if we if we didn't have them. Can I talk about jazz for a second? Mm -hmm. Please, 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. this, this is one of my favorite examples, because one of the advocates for nationalism, a guy named Rich Lowry, in his book, he says, look, America is a British and biblical people. That's his argument. And, our, and he says, nationalism should be all about preserving the cultural nation as we are as a British and Protestant people. But he also says, this is not racist. And to prove that I'm not a racist, I love jazz. And jazz wasn't invented by white people. And we all know that's true, right? <laughs> white people would never invent jazz. So he wants to say, we're British, we're Protestant, but also I love jazz. And I have questions. Because if your goal is to preserve the cultural nation as it is, what are you going to say about jazz in about 1915? You know, the, the white critics of jazz were pretty nasty and bigoted and ugly when they said jazz was voodoo music, music of the jungle, un-American. This is what they said about jazz 100 years ago. It was un-American music. So if you're going to celebrate jazz, which we all should, you need to celebrate and recognize the cultural conditions of fluidity, change, overlap, and multiculturalism that led to jazz. That's mm -hmm. what makes America great. That's what's uniquely American, is that conditions of cultural fluidity and change. So if you're gonna celebrate jazz, you gotta recognize where it came from, and it doesn't come from preserving an Anglo-Protestant cultural nation. It's a, it's kind of strange, because like from, like on its face, we are Christians. And so we believe that there is a way that leads to human flourishing. And I can hear maybe if I'm trying to be like very fair about this Christian nationalist argument, I can hear somebody saying, hey, all I'm trying to do is say, this is my conception of the good life. My conception of the good life is a Christian one, and we should be able to enshrine, and I believe it's enshrined. I mean, I think this is where maybe I differ a little bit, but I believe that's enshrined in the founding of our government. And as we've gone forward, we've always been that. And so let's, let's make sure that we keep you know, the Christian parts of our country, which lead to human flourishing. Wouldn't you agree, Christian? Let's make sure we keep those going. I, and then maybe they ask, what's so wrong about that? <laughs> right? right. And so like getting to the core of this problem or, or this, you know, why, so why would Christian nationalism be bad if we're defining it sort of benignly like that other than maybe it like, and, and I think it's a good point, but well, maybe some people don't fit into that they might say, well, we've done a good job making sure that people can still be here or whatever. Or you can still be an American. Like where, where, yeah, where does it go wrong? Where is it, where does this turn into a problem? Yeah, that's, that's a really good and important question because as Christians, it is good and appropriate for us to pursue justice mm -hmm. in the public square. That's a Christian value. It's good for us to seek righteousness, not just individually, but corporately. Righteousness exalts the nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. We should seek the welfare of the city into which we've been called exile. Righteousness, God, God loves justice. That's Amen. in the Psalms. And righteousness is, is his, the foundation of his throne. This is all true. And so we as Christians should go to the public square and seek justice. Question is, how do we do that without becoming theocrats, mm -hmm. right? How do we pursue justice without trying to advance Christian supremacy? What's the difference between Christian principle and Christian power? The short answer is go read the book. <laughs> I try to <laughs> tease it out there. You know, quite a lot of it is just about your heart attitude. 
right? What are are you really out for your neighbor's flourishing mm. or are you out for your tribe's prerogatives? A good test case would be your attitude towards religious freedom. I think religious freedom is in the Bible. I think it's a Christian principle. I think the set, you know, the distinction between the church's jurisdiction and the state's jurisdiction is there in the Bible. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, my kingdom is not of this world. So we should recognize and preserve that. But if we do that in a truly principled way, it means that we should advocate for the religious freedom of Muslims, the religious freedom of atheists and agnostics and, and progressives, as much as our own religious freedom. That's a good test case, because sometimes it might feel very uncomfortable. We might actually lose social power, political power, when we advocate for the other's religious freedom. And if we're willing to do that, that is truly advancing justice and religious freedom, Christian principle, not Christian power. I totally agree. And I, and I, and I really stand firm on this. But one of the charges that I've heard lately, uh, and it's actually why the pagans blame Christianity, the, these neo-pagan or far right blame Christianity for this problem. But they're saying, hey, that will lead in our global day and age to basically the collapse of the very thing you want. So if you propose this idea of religious liberty and then a ton of Muslims move here, right? This is like what you hear in the UK or in France, right? And you don't have an undergirding guiding principle except for multiculturalism, then all the Muslims are going to come in and they're going to change the laws and then there's no more religious freedom, right? And so there's this almost xenophobic mm -hmm. kind of push, but mm -hmm. the fear of the other that's happening. But how, how do we as Christians try to think through that? Because that's the kind of nationalist bent, yeah. you know, maybe it's not particularly Christian, but that is the naturalist the fear. or the Western bent. It seems yeah. afraid mm -hmm. to me, but yeah, I don't know. W would you speak to that? Have you, have you wrestled yeah. with that topic? So, so this is an interesting dilemma, and I think we see it pretty clearly in places like France, I think the Netherlands as well, where they do have a pretty significant Muslim immigrant population that has not assimilated at all. And indeed, there are some troubling signs that those, po those immigrant populations aren't, aren't sharing the liberal values of Europe because those European countries are far more nationalist and they don't make any effort to assimilate their immigrant populations into a creedal conception of who they are as a country. France is a highly nationalist country, and they have a very concrete conception of what it means to be a Frenchman, and it usually does not include Muslims. Muslims in America are far more well assimilated and integrated into American life, and far more welcoming of the American creed, because we define ourselves that way. To the extent that we accept the nationalist conception of America, to that very extent, we would have a problem assimilating Muslim immigrants. And yes, they might become a kind of a threat to that version of American identity. But if we are welcoming and open, then they're not a threat. Uh, and so it's, it's a self-perpetuating cycle in either direction, either a virtuous cycle of openness and assimilation or a vicious cycle of exclusion and therefore making them into the threat that you fear they are. It, there's something really powerful about what you said too, and it's something I think we leave out a lot, but in most of those European countries, they came, it's not, it's, it may, maybe you could help me with this, but the analog's not perfect, but they had state churches, right? Which we, in America, we've never had this sort of established religion, which made it part of what it meant to be. French was to be Catholic forever or whatever, right? Yeah. There is some sort of analog there that helps define national identity when you have a state church, you know? It seems that way anyways. Yeah. Disestablishment is the best 
means to religious vitality, mm. right? Religion is actually more alive when it's all up to us to make it work. Right. It's the churches, it's the states that have had these state established churches forever that are empty. Yeah. Uh, to be very clear, we did more or less have a, a quasi-established Protestantism for 150 years. That's a, And maybe that's why the mainline churches are essentially dead. Right? Yeah. They were the establishment of America, and now they're emptying out. The Episcopalians, the Congregationalists, the Unitarians, you know, those churches have been dying for decades, in part because I think they were the quasi-established churches. Yeah. Which I think th that, to your point, like all you have to do is trace that argument one more step and it says, wait, that's where Christian nationalism might take Christianity, right? Because in that, maybe it's not established in the same way, but you certainly are establishing it in terms of identity. And yeah. then if it come, becomes yeah. bound up with this national thing, yeah, I mean, it... Yeah, that's, it's almost the whole point of Christian nationalism. They want to resurrect some version of Christendom right. in America. They want to reestablish a quasi-established Christianity as the public philosophy of our, of our life together. And one, that ain't going to work. Two, there's too many different versions of Christianity. How are you going to pick one? Three, all that does is resurrect Phariseeism, mm, of a religion mm -hmm. of works. It reduces Christianity to social conformity. It's Christianity as another form of political correctness. Mm -hmm. It's Christian political correctness where you ape the the, the, the appearance of righteousness for the sake of social cohesion. That's not why Jesus came, right? So Christian nationalism, it preaches a false version of the gospel and mm. establishes it as the religion of the state. I don't want Caesar enforcing Pharisaism and calling it Christianity. Yes. That's really good. I feel like you sum it up really good in the book at the beginning of the chapter. I think it's on nationalism in the Bible. You said nationalism when given a Christian gloss leads to grasping for power at the expense of Christian ideals, right? And it's you, in one way, you feel like you're fighting for the thing. Because I, I, I loved you asked the question earlier, Adam, because there is a sense where I wonder, especially for some maybe that know even all of the kind of the technical ideas around it, they're like, I do want, like, I want more, I want to share the gospel. I yeah, want Christianity yeah. to be alive, you know, in the country. And, you know, what's wrong with this? And I think that distinction between one of the ways I've I've tried to think about it in my own ma mind is, am I looking for the gospel to go forward by the power of Christ and his spirit through his church as God designed it? Or am I looking for a shortcut where the state just does that work for us mm -hmm. and no spirit is needed mm -hmm. and no Jesus is needed and no church is needed? And that's that's mm -hmm. more so what this is than, than the latter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe this is a good spot to end this one. You know, this episode, we've got to really define our terms, think about what what is Christian nationalism. You know, before we can go any further, we need to understand that. And as we said earlier, right, it is a way in which we try to hold a Christian nation by the power of the government. And in the next episode, if you'll tune back in with us, we want to look like, what does it look like for us to turn the corner and maybe begin to exercise our freedoms as American citizens while also holding to our ideals as Christians and how we might better influence our country towards God's glory and the betterment of all people. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from the Good Podcast Company. Be sure to check the show notes to connect with us and our guests.